You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. I hope you're having a good weekend so far. Uh, for Faith and I, it's been a good weekend. It's been busy, though. We uh, moved two weeks ago, and so we're still very much in the process of getting settled in and and um, one of the things that's been a challenge in the midst of that has been homeschooling the kids, but uh, we've been figuring it out, and uh, Faith is definitely the, the one who is the primary teacher with the kids, but again, with the move and everything, I've been helping out a little more than normal, and the other day, I was helping uh, one of our daughters, Miriam, work through uh, her workbook, and we were learning about the invention of the car, and all of the changes that have happened throughout history with the car and with driving in general, things like seat belts and traffic lights and things like that. And one of the things I was thinking about uh, this week in light of driving and, again, just the invention of the car and all of the advances in technology um, as a whole uh, is that, in general, um, a whole lot less of us are getting lost than we used to. And what I mean by that is that for the first hundred years or so, uh, getting lost while driving was a real possibility. In fact, I'm sure it happened to many of you all of the time, and, and uh, it definitely was the kind of thing that, that most people uh, took the time to learn the skill of, of learning how to read a map and, and understand how, you know, what freeways did what and, and where roads were and, and all of that. Most people had some sort of road atlas in their car. You remember you had to go to Walmart or something and get the updated one because they... You know, an, un, uh, an old one just didn't help you any. And, um, but now, with the invention of GPS and the fact that uh, most of us have GPS on our phones, it's rare for someone to actually get lost. I mean, you may not always know exactly where you are, but you know that if you keep following that little arrow and that little annoying computer voice, eventually you'll get to where you need to go. And it's funny, I was thinking about this idea of of being lost, and I was thinking about the first time that I got super lost while driving, and it happened to me about 15 years ago, and basically what happened was I was a, a new Christian, and I had just gotten plugged in with Limworth's College Ministry down at Ohio State, and so I was consistently driving from where I lived out east. Um, I think at the time I, I was living with my folks in either Pataskala or Hebron, and uh, I can't remember which one, but I would drive from there to OSU's campus every week to attend this uh, college group. And basically, at the time, I knew nothing about the Columbus Freeway system other than how to get to campus and back home, and that was it. Well, this one particular night, uh, after a group, a bunch of us were invited to uh, Andy Kramer and Romy Noss's apartment to hang out. Now, those are some names that are a blast from the past, but uh, it, if I remember right, they live somewhere in the Dublin area, um, somewhere like off Sawmill Road or Smoky Row, somewhere like that. And so I followed a friend from OSU to, uh, their apartment, to that apartment, and so we're there, and we're hanging out for a few hours, and then at some point in the night, I realize, oh, wow, it's getting pretty late, and I have a long drive home. I should probably get going. Now, again, you have to realize, basically at this point, I don't know Columbus roads. I don't know the freeways at all. I mean, I maybe at the time knew that 270 was one big loop around the city, but I'm not even sure I knew that. But here I am, I'm leaving Dublin, I get on 270, and I'm headed to what I think is 71. Because again, all I knew, uh, again, from where I grew up, was that I could take 70 West to 71 North and get off at 11th Avenue and get to campus, and then just reverse that and get back home. And so I'm heading to what I think is 71 South, 
And instead, I start seeing a bunch of exit signs that I've never heard of, like Tuttle Crossing and Cemetery Road and Roberts Road. And uh, at this point, I'm starting to panic because I'm feeling super lost, and it's like midnight, and it's way too late to call my dad or my brother or anyone else that could help me figure out where I am. And so again, I start to panic a little bit. And I can't exactly remember what happened next or what roads I got onto, but I do remember at one point seeing downtown Columbus and thinking, okay, good, there's downtown. But then I was hit with fear again because from where I was driving, downtown was not where I wanted it to be. Like, downtown was over here, and I wanted it to be over there. And so, again, I started to panic some more. Now, in case you're having trouble tracking with the story, basically what happened is I went the wrong way on 270. And instead of being uh, on the east side of downtown, I was on the west side, which was a part of town that I was completely unfamiliar with. And for a a 19- or a 20-year-old kid from the country, um, being lost in the big city that late at night was terrifying. Now, fortunately, somehow, I can't remember what happened. I think I either got on West Broad or I got off on 70. I don't know. Somehow I made it home um, and figured it out. But this idea, this concept of being lost is a very important picture and an analogy that is used in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. And today, as we continue on in our series in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see Jesus talk about and teach on this idea of being lost and found. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be looking here at verses 1 to 10. Um, If you need to borrow a pew Bible, it's it's found on page 874. And once you find it, go ahead and stand as I read today's passage. Again, it's going to be Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your words here, and thank you for uh, just this moment we have together as a body to uh, spend some time thinking about the teachings of Christ and thinking about what they mean for us, Lord, and and how you want to speak to us. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would, uh, all of us today, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to know. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So our outline this morning to walk us through these two parables is just very simply three truths about lost things. Number one, important things that are lost demand to be looked for. Number two, finding lost things takes intention and effort. And then number three, when lost things are found, there is great joy and celebration. And so starting with number one, 
Important things that are lost demand to be looked for. Look again at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Now one of the things that you have to constantly keep in mind when you're reading the Bible is that verses and chapter breaks were not put in there by the original authors. Now for the most part, that's not a big deal, and in fact, it's often helpful. But one of the things that can happen is you can finish a chapter and then move on to the next chapter without realizing the important link that the author is trying to make between what he said at the end of one chapter and what he wants to say at the beginning of another. And that's certainly true as we start here, chapter 15. You see, last week, uh, we finished chapter 14, and in it, we saw Jesus talking about discipleship and what it means for someone to follow him. And in the last verse of chapter 14, Jesus finishes uh, by saying this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, with that statement in mind, let's ignore the chapter break, and let's read again the beginning of chapter 15. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So what is Luke trying to communicate to us? Well, I think it seems fairly obvious when you take out the chapter break that he is trying to show us that by and large, It is the tax collectors and sinners who are the ones who have ears to hear, whereas the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, they do not. You see, instead of listening to Jesus, they were too busy complaining and grumbling about the way that Jesus did his ministry. They don't like the fact that he is uh, giving time and attention to these societal outcasts. That these societal outcasts are being drawn towards him and that Jesus is showing them grace and he's giving them his attention. Again, the accusation that they make against Jesus there in verse 2 is that he receives, or as some translations say, he welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, one of the things that we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus is that he is willing to eat a meal with anybody. Two weeks ago, we saw uh, John Hopler uh, talk about that, that uh, Jesus was eating a meal with the Pharisees. And he emphasized the fact that the gospel truly is for everyone, including the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. However, though, this week, we see that the gospel is for everyone, including those who are far from God. Those who the religious leaders saw as outcasts. Again, the, the kind of people like tax collectors and sinners. Now, another thing you have to keep in mind when you come to parables is it's important to understand and to know the composition of the crowd. Because oftentimes, the point of the parable will be directly related to who the audience is. And so with that, what we see here is that the audience is made up of two groups. On the one side, we have sinners and tax collectors who are desperate to hear Jesus And on the other side, we have uh, Pharisees and scribes who are in the process of grumbling and complaining at Jesus' approach to ministry, and in particular, his love and his concern for those who are far from God. And so in response to that, and out of that context, Jesus then launches into some parables. And really what we're going to see is that these parables form a defense and a justification for Jesus' ministry and for why he does the things that he does. And I think they also show us why we too should join him in his mission. And so with that context in mind, let's look again at these two parables. And so starting in verse 4, it says this, 
What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And so Jesus starts this parable here off with basically a rhetorical question. He says, which one of you, if you were a shepherd and you were in the midst of counting your sheep at the end of the day and you realize that you were one short, which one of you wouldn't immediately leave the rest of the flock and go after the one that was lost? And I think his point in asking this question is that, well, you, you all would. You would all get up and you would go and search for the one lost sheep. And, and so because of that, um, if, if that point wasn't clear enough, he then uh, tells a second parable which emphasizes the same point. In verse 8 he says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? You see, again, Jesus is trying to hammer home this idea, this truth, that important things that are lost demand to be looked for. I mean, you don't say to yourself, well, you know, you win some, you lose some, or you know what, let's just cut our losses and let's just focus on what we have remaining. No, when something is important to us, when something of great value is lost, you are compelled to look for and to search it out. Now, I know this might come as a surprise to some of you, especially since I just told you I'm from Pataskala, but I, I do not own any sheep. Um, I have quite a few kids, but I don't own any sheep, and uh, I can't imagine if one of my kids wandered off not doing all that I or my wife could, uh, all that we could possibly do in order to find them. In fact, that's not theoretical. In fact, we've had kids wander off and have gotten lost. And every time as a parent, your heart sinks and you start to panic and then you do all that you can to find them. Um, Henry, one of our youngest kids, when he first learned to walk, he would often disappear. In fact, it would happen more often than I would like to admit. And one time, um, we were at my aunt and uncle's house for a family reunion and he wandered off. And so we all started looking for him. Uh, eventually, we found him at a somewhat distant neighbor's house, and he was trying to uh, get inside and drive some other kid's big wheel. And so not only does he have a problem wandering off, but he might be a thief as well. And so uh, we found him and, and were able to bring him back. Uh, another time, shortly after that, we were at Bob and Rhonda Heron's house, and uh, we were outside just sitting around eating and chatting and enjoying each other's company. And at some point, I realized that I hadn't seen Henry in a while, which at this point I had learned was not a good, I, was not a good thing. And uh, so I, I was like, I'm sure he's around here somewhere. Um, but then I remembered that Bob and Rhonda have a pond. And then I started to, to panic. And it was like, oh, we got to look for him now, you know. And so a bunch of us jumped up and started looking for him. And eventually we found him in one of Bob's sheds uh, pretending to drive his John Deere tractor. And uh, so all, everything was okay. But um, basically now I understand why uh, some parents have opted for those kid leashes that you see out there. Um, we don't own one, but I understand them and I'm tempted by them. But um, definitely some kids have a tendency to wander off to get lost. I was thinking, you know, maybe I should get Henry one of those shirts that are popular that say, not everyone who wanders is lost, because he never seems to be concerned about it. It never uh, acts like he's lost. It's like, well, where have you guys been? I've been here the whole time. But um, again, the point I'm trying to make, and the point that I think Jesus is making here in these two parables, is that uh, when important things are lost, they demand to be looked for. And so what Jesus is saying, if that's true... If that's true of lost sheep, if that's true of a lost coin, that is certainly true 
of a lost soul. That's true of someone who is far from God, who doesn't know God. You see, ultimately what Jesus is doing here is he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, look, if, if lost sheep and lost coins demand that someone do all that they can to look for them, how much more is that true that I, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, how much more should I be out looking for and finding those who are far from God? And so again, you have to keep in mind here that, that these parables serve, I think, as a defense as to why Jesus hangs out with and associates with those individuals who the religious community finds offensive. In fact, later on in Luke, Jesus will just explicitly state that, that this is part of his mission. This is why he came to earth. In Luke 19.10, the, the context of which there is Jesus' interactions with a, a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And at the end of that story, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so this is the first truth that we see here in these parables. Let's move on to the second one, and it's this. Finding lost things takes intention and effort. Now, we've already read these verses, but, but look there again in verse 4. And what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Similarly there in verse 8 it says, Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? See, in order to find something that is lost, you have to be intentional. You have to put in effort. You have to be determined. In the first person we see, or in the first parable, we see the shepherd get up and he leaves the rest of the sheep and he goes and he searches until he finds the one that is lost. Again, there's intention on his part. There's work involved. The same is obviously true of the woman with the coin. I mean, Jesus says there that she uh, takes the time to light a lamp and to sweep her house in order to find the coin. In fact, he describes her effort there by saying she seeks diligently until she finds it. And so as we think about uh, Jesus' life and as we think about his ministry, we see that he himself put in a lot of effort and intention into reaching out and seeking those who were lost spiritually, to finding those who were far from God. In other words, when you read the Gospels, one of the things that you see over and over again is that Jesus spent a lot of time with unbelievers. He spent time with those who were needy, those who were broken and immoral. Again, he understood that in order for them to repent, in order for them to change and to come into the kingdom, it was going to require uh, for him to be intentional. It was going to require him to uh, put in the time and the effort into seeking them out. And so that's the second truth that we see here from these parables. The, the last truth I want to draw out is this. When lost things are found, there is great joy and celebration. If we go back to the parable of the lost sheep and look at verse 5, it says this. And speaking of the, the sheep that's found, he says, And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. 
He says almost the exact same words in, in, in describing the second parable with the lost coin. In verse 9 he says, And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so again, the truth that we see here, and perhaps this is the, the main point of the parables, is that when lost things are found, there is great joy and celebration. Now, if you've ever lost something important to you, you and then found it, you know that absolutely that's the case. I mean, when I went from thinking that Henry possibly had fallen in and drowned in a pond to finding him joyfully playing on a tractor, I was filled with joy. I also wanted to wring his neck, but the, the primary emotion was joy, right? Um, the, the time that I stuck my wallet on top of my car and then proceeded to get in and drive off and, and lost my wallet and then uh, had a, later on a, a, someone found it and called the police station and turned it in and they called me and said they had my wallet, I was filled with joy. It was a good day. It was a cause for celebration because, again, the point is, is that when lost things are found, the result is you should be uh, rejoicing and celebrating. And what Jesus is trying to help these Pharisees and scribes understand is that when a person repents, when a person turns to God, whether it's a tax collector or a sinner or whoever, when that happens, all of heaven rejoices and celebrates. And so if that's true, why aren't you celebrating? Why aren't you rejoicing that these tax collectors and these sinners are being drawn into the kingdom by me? You see, guys, instead of judging me, instead of grumbling uh, against the way that I do ministry, you should be joining in with me. You should join me in, 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 in searching and in, in seeking to rescue those who are lost and who are far from God. And then we could join in the celebration together. And yet what, we, what we'll see next week and what we'll see throughout the rest of Luke is that by and large, the religious leaders, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, they can't and they won't do that. You see, as the book continues on, what we see is that instead of joining Jesus in his mission, they try to stop him. Instead of supporting him, instead of speaking up for him, they try to silence him. And so these are the, the three truths that I think Jesus is drawing out here in these parables. But as we step back, as we think about our own lives, what is it that we can learn from these two parables? Well, as I thought about these parables this week, um, the thing that I kept coming back to and the thing that so struck me was Jesus' heart for the lost. I mean, when you think about these parables, what we see is that Jesus is essentially saying that the action of the shepherd, the action of the woman, they serve as metaphors for what God is doing through him. Lost souls are so important to God the Father and are so important to Jesus uh, that, that actually he was willing to leave the glories of heaven in order to seek and to save the lost. Again, that's what Jesus said there in Luke 19.10. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so if that was Jesus' mission, that was his mission while here on earth, but what we see in, in passages like Matthew 28 and Acts 1 and John 17 and others, that, that before he ascended back to heaven, before he left, he passed that mission on to us, his followers. And so Jesus is inviting you, and he is inviting me. In fact, I would even say it a little stronger. He is commanding you, and he is commanding me to join him in his mission to seek and to find those who are lost. 
I mean, this is one of the number one things on, if not the number one thing on, the heart of God. He loves the lost. And he desperately wants them to know and to accept his son Jesus. And so my question for you and my question for me this morning is, do we love what God loves? Do we care about what God cares about? See, the reality was, is the Pharisees and the scribes didn't. They thought that they did. They, they thought they loved what God loved. They thought they cared about what he cared about. But in reality, they were deceived. And Jesus tried to show them that in these parables. And he tried to bring correction, but they just would not listen. I mean, can you imagine someone looking for something precious to them and you being super indifferent and unwilling to help them look? I remember once uh, I, I was at Quaker Steak and Lube with some friends, and uh, this was when I was in my early 20s, and it was one of those all-you-can-eat wing nights. Th- those are amazing. Those, are, I think, are a gift from the Lord. But, um, <laughs> so it was all-you-can-eat wing nights, so we were going pretty hard. Uh, in fact, I think one friend, uh, who I won't name, I eat like 40 wings that night. And, um, but, but as the night went on, we uh, got really dumb, and we ordered the, the one wing that they have there that is so hot that you have to sign a release form and a waiver before they'll let you try it. And so again, I'm, I'm with some buddies, we're in our early 20s, and so we're stupid and we're competitive, and at one point, um, it came out that I had never tried these and another friend had never tried these, and so the rest of them put pressure on us, and we gave in, and so we ordered the wings and we took a bite, and immediately, like, it just smacks you in the face. And I started having all of these weird physical sensations, none of which were pleasant, and, um, so you start doing all you can. You, know, you eat bread, you chug water and milk and whatever else is on the table that you think might help. Meanwhile, at the table next to us was a woman, and, and she was shouting something at us, and she was trying to get under our table. And what I thought she was saying is, I lost my wing, meaning she dropped a chicken wing. <laughs> and through all the pain and, and all that I was experiencing, I was thinking, look, lady, Can't you see I'm in some serious pain here? It's all-you-can-eat wing night. Just order some more, right? Like, forget the lost wing. Well, apparently I misunderstood her, and she said I lost my ring, not I lost my wing. In other words, she dropped her engagement ring under our table and was frantically searching for it. And so once I realized what she was looking for, I, even though I wasn't in my right mind and I was in a lot of pain, I got on my knees, and the rest of us at the table started helping her look for her ring. Because again, when something of great value is lost by someone, we should feel compelled to help them look for it. I mean, could you imagine if in that moment I turned to the lady and I said, look, will you leave us alone? We don't know you. Nobody at this table cares about your stupid ring. We're not going to help you look for it. I mean, can you imagine? That's crazy, right? We wouldn't do that. And yet here's the thing. While in pain, I got on my knees and I helped a stranger look for something that was important to them. Now, if we would do that for someone we don't know and someone we don't necessarily love, how much more should we do that for someone we do know and someone we do love? Especially when that person is Jesus, the very one who sought us and rescued us when we were lost. Now, look, I know and I understand that sharing the gospel with non-Christians is hard. In fact, if we're being honest, I think as our culture has grown in its dislike for Christianity, that has only gotten harder. In fact, one book I was reading this week was called The Reluctant Witness, um, and in the book, the author was talking about this very point, point. and he was saying it's essentially like across America right now with Christians, it's like the cat's got our tongue, 
And the book had all of this new research in it from Barna showing that there have been huge drops in the last 25 years in evangelism and in individual Christians having spiritual conversations with non-Christians. And I hope this isn't too crass, but one quote from the book that that really uh, convicted me, but it also made me giggle, was this. In our culture, there are times when speaking about our faith is pretty much the conversational equivalent of passing gas, loudly. It can be awkward, embarrassing, and make people think less of us or cause people to make fun of us depending on the crowd. Now, maybe you think that's overstated, but I have certainly felt what he is talking about. I mean, I'm a pastor. I do this for a living. And even still, I have found it hard and difficult in recent years and and even awkward to share my faith with non-Christians consistently. In fact, I mentioned earlier that we just moved, and the other day I was outside uh, breaking down some moving boxes and putting them in my car to take to recycling, and I ended up talking to one of our new neighbors, and and so we were standing out there chatting, and she was telling me about the neighborhood and what the neighbors were like and all of that, and and then all of a sudden my son Hudson and this uh, other little girl who is another new neighbor came up, and we're standing there, and, and the little girl looked at me, and she said, who are you? Are you Hudson's dad? I was like, yeah, I'm Hudson's dad. She's like, oh, oh. You're, so you must be the preacher then. And I was like, what? What did you say to me? The preacher? I mean, I was thinking, who told you that? Because I don't introduce myself as, well, I'm the preacher. Um, <laughs> and my wife doesn't say that about me. And so I was very confused. I, I later found out Hudson was the one who was like, yeah, my dad's a preacher. I, I don't know what that conversation was like. But um, anyway, it, it was weird because um, when she said that in front of this other neighbor, I immediately felt kind of flushed and embarrassed. And, and, and so, again, I bring that up because if, if some of you are feeling that when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to uh, having spiritual conversations, or even just admitting that you're a Christian, you're not alone. Now, look, in saying that, I'm in no way trying to give you an excuse or an out. Rather, what I'm saying is that I, along maybe, uh, alongside maybe some of you, need to repent and to ask Jesus to empower us in this area. You see, I've been following the Lord now for over 15 years, and one of the things that bothers me the most is that as the years have gone on, my heart for the lost has at times been more indifferent than I would like it to be. And yet as a follower of Jesus, I desperately want to love what Jesus loves. I want to care about what Jesus cares about, and as today's passage is made clear, Jesus loves and Jesus cares about the lost. You see, there's a big world out there, a world that is, has been lost and separated from its creator. And as a result, it is suffering devastating consequences. And Jesus' heart and Jesus' call on our lives is that you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you and I would join him in his mission of sharing the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and the forgiveness that is found in him. And he wants us to do that with those who are are lost, who have not heard that. And the thing is, as we saw in the parables, in doing so, when we join Jesus in his mission, we get to uh, join in in the rejoicing and the celebration that happens when the lost are found. We get to be like the friends and the neighbors that are called together to to celebrate the, the fact that something that was lost is now found. And so to illustrate the importance of this work, and of the role that you and I can play, 
uh, I want to share with you a true story about two people who were lost from each other and then the role that someone else played in bringing them together. Now, just a heads up, this story is not about evangelism, but even still, I think it serves as an analogy of what evangelism looks like. And the story is about a man named uh, Markel Sternberger. I don't know if I have that first name right. Um, It's Hungarian. And it was first told in 1949 in a Reader's Digest. And the story is this. On January 10th, 1948, just two years after the end of the Second World War, Merkel Sternberger took a train in the Brooklyn subway. Usually he took a different line, but his schedule changed because he wanted to visit a sick friend that morning. And so now he was on a different train, departing at noon so that he could make it to work. So uh, as he uh, hopped on the train, it was packed. And he was just about to get off and to wait for the next train when one man suddenly jumped up from his seat and left the train uh, hurriedly, probably realizing at the last minute that he was about to miss his stop. So Sternberger took the vacant seat. Now sitting next to him was a man reading a Hungarian newspaper. Sternberger was born in Hungary, and though he was not the type of person to start a conversation with strangers, maybe some of you are like that, I'm like that, he felt compelled to do so. He turned to the man and he said in Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper. The man was surprised to be addressed in his native language during, during, uh, to be addressed in his native language. During the trip, they began to talk. The man began to share with Sternberger his heart-rending story. His last name was Paskin. When the war started, he was a law student. Eventually, he enlisted in a labor battalion and was sent to Ukraine. He was captured by the Russians and was put to work burying the, uh, the German dead. After the war was over, he traveled hundreds of miles on foot to return to his home of Debrecen, Hungary, only to discover that his entire family was gone. Strangers were living in the apartment that he had once occupied with his father, his mother, his brothers, and his sisters. When he reached the apartment where he and his wife had lived, it was also occupied by people he didn't know. Eventually, he found some old friends in Debrecen who had survived the carnage of the war, and they sorrowfully informed him that his entire family was dead. The Nazis had taken his wife to Auschwitz, where they were presumably murdered in the gas chambers. Paskin was shocked by the news. He left Hungary, which was, then now to him, which was now to him a land of death. He went west toward Paris, and eventually he immigrated to the United States in October of 1947. As Sternberger listened to this man's incredible story, somehow it seemed familiar, and it suddenly dawned on him. Only recently, he had met a young woman in the home of some friends who had been from Debrecen. And she had been taken to Auschwitz, but was then transferred to work in a German's munitions factory. All her relatives had been killed in the gas chambers. And after she, uh, after she and the camp where she worked was liberated by the Americans, she was brought to New, U- to New York, New York, and the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Sternberger had been so stirred by her story, he had written down her address and her phone number, hoping to invite her to meet his family in order to assist her in her time of loneliness and grief. Sternberger could not imagine that this was nothing more than a strange coincidence. But when the train reached his stop, he stayed on the subway with his newfound friend. Sternberger asked Paskins informally, is your first name Bella? The man's face went pale. He said, yes, How did you know? 
Sternberger fumbled it in his address book, and he asked, was your wife's, was your wife's name Maria? Looking as though he might pass out, Paskin said, yes, yes. Sternberger suggested that they get off at the next station without explanation. He led Paskins to a nearby phone booth. While Paskins stood there like a man in a stupor, Sternberger made a phone call, and after what seemed like an eternity, Sternberger had Maria Paskin on the line. Sternberger reminded her of their recent chance meeting, and she remembered him. Without explaining why, Sternberger asked Maria had she lived in Debrecen before the war, and she, um, he had asked, what, what was your address? And Sternberger turned to Paskin and he said, did you and your wife live on such and such a street? Yes, Bella exclaimed as he trembled. Sternberger urged Paskin to stay calm, but then he readied him by telling him that the miraculous was about to happen. He then handed Bella the phone saying, here, take the telephone and talk to your wife. When Paskin realized that he was actually speaking with his Maria, he cried uncontrollably. Sternberger sent him by taxi to be reunited with his wife. Bella and Maria each thought the other was dead. And now halfway across the world in their new country, they were husband and wife once again. Reader's Digest ends the article in this way. Skeptical persons would no doubt attribute the events that afternoon to mere chance. But was it chance that made Sternberger suddenly decide to visit his sick friend and hence take a subway line that he had never been on before? Was it chance that caused the man sitting by the door to... Uh, by the door of the car to rush out just as Sternberger walked in? Was it chance that caused Bella Paskins to be sitting beside Sternberger reading a Hungarian newspaper? Was it chance or did God ride the Brooklyn subway that afternoon? Now again, I know that story isn't dealing with evangelism, but it does deal with the power of helping lost people get found and the role and the responsibility that you and I have. I mean, can you imagine if in that moment, Sternberger knew that he could reconnect this couple, but decided not to do it. Could you imagine if Sternberger thought, well, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I could help this guy out, but at the same time, I, you know, I, I've got a lot to deal with. I need to get to work after all. I mean, I, I've, I've got a busy day, and so um, I'm, just, I'm not going to be able to take the time to, to help this guy. Or could you imagine if he was like, I'm pretty sure that this is this guy's wife, but man, this guy seems pretty emotionally worked up, and I'm just not equipped for that. I'm not prepared to, to get involved with that kind of a messy situation, and so I'm just going to not say anything. I mean, can you imagine that? I don't, I don't think we can imagine that, knowing how the story turned out. And yet, bringing it back to evangelism, here's the deal. As followers of Jesus, we know that ultimately, whether people realize it or not, they are looking for God. They are looking for their Creator. They are longing to be restored into relationship with the one that they were made for. And you and I know him. And we have the ability to lead them to him. And so out of love for Jesus, and out of love and concern for the lost, let's be faithful in sharing the gospel with those who are far from God. I mean, let's, I think sometimes I have to remind myself, let's not forget, the gospel is good news. It's not bad news. It's not inconvenient news. It's good news. It's the best news there is. And you and I have the responsibility and the privilege of sharing it with those who are lost. And so as we close here, my challenge for you and my challenge for me is that this next week, let's commit to having at least one spiritual conversation with a, non, with a non-Christian. 
I mean, it could be as simple as tomorrow morning when one of your coworkers turns to you and says, how was your weekend? Or what did you do this weekend? You could just mention, well, I went to church and say something about it. Or even just say, I went to church. Because as I've talked to some of you, even just saying that has become hard. And so just maybe for you, that's your first step. Yeah, I went to church yesterday with my family and it was great, you know, and um, we went to lunch afterwards, whatever. But just, you know, wave the Christian flag, even if it's just a little bit. So maybe, that's, maybe that would be a step for some of you. Maybe for others of you, 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 you you're maybe even take a bigger step and you share your testimony about how you became a Christian. Or maybe you just flat on share the gospel. You say, you know, I, 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 you know co-worker, we've, we've been sitting next to each other for years and I just, there's something that's so important to me. And I, I was thinking about it the other day and I just have realized I've never shared with you the most important thing that is in my life. And you just say, you just flat out share the gospel. I think, you know, as, as Pastor Mike, one of our, who I would say is an evangelist, um, as he always encourages us, just pray for opportunities. Just start there. Say, Lord, will you open a door tomorrow morning or uh, this week at work or in my neighborhood or as I go to the Starbucks or whatever, will you open a door for me to be able to just have a spiritual conversation with someone? And I believe that if you and I do that, if we pray and we ask the Lord to do that, he's going to open a door. Now, you're going to have to still walk through that door, and you're going to have to open your mouth, but I believe that he will give you an opportunity. Can we commit to that? Can you commit to just one tiny conversation with someone who's a non-Christian? Sound good? All right, amen. Let's pray. Father, we... Lord, I know that for many of us, Lord, when we think about this topic of evangelism, this topic of sharing our faith, Lord, so many of us are aware of how we fall short. Lord, we're aware of the fact that we let fear and insecurity and, and, and fear of what others might think of us um, plague us from opening our mouths. And Lord, we, at least I'll start with myself, Lord, I repent of that. Lord, I want to change. I want to love what you love. I want to care about what you care about, Lord. And I know you love the lost. Lord, you love uh, those in, who have never heard of you, Lord. I just think about all of those around the world who have never even heard the name Jesus. And God, your heart breaks for them. And Lord, you are longing for uh, those of us who know you to step up and to uh, go to those places to share the gospel. And Lord, as our country becomes more and more secular, Lord, we know that we're just, we're more and more surrounded by those who have never heard the gospel. They've probably heard the name Jesus, but they have never actually had the gospel explained to them in a way that they could understand. And so, Lord, would you, as a church, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit, and would you fill us with boldness? God, I just think of there in Acts 4 when, when the believers are, are, are being persecuted and they pray and they ask you to stretch out your hand to perform, to perform signs and wonders and to enable them to be, be, to be bold, Lord. And then the Holy Spirit shakes the room and they're filled with the Spirit and then they go out and then we see over and over again that people were added day, day after day. Lord, would you do that again? Father, would you just be adding those, uh, adding people who are lost, would you be adding them to be found into our body, Lord, day by day? But Lord, in order to do that, we have to be willing to share. So we need your help, Lord. Would you fill us?
Would you empower us by your spirit? In Jesus' name.